Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Judges, chapter 13. Judges, chapter 13. Hear now the word of our God. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren, and he had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful, and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may eat of anything that comes from the she may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son, and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manachadan, between Zorah and Eshtaol. This is the word of the Lord. There's something important about Judges chapter 12 that we didn't mention last week. 
partly because of how it sets up this week, so I've waited until now. But you may recall back at the beginning of the book of Judges, back in the, in the early Judges, it said things like, after Othniel, the land had rest for 40 years. Or after Ehud, the land had rest for 80 years. After Deborah, the land had rest for 40 years. After Gideon, the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon, alerting us to the fact that the pattern's changing. Because after Gideon, the land has no rest. Tola judged Israel 23 years and died. Yair judged Israel 22 years and died. Jephthah judged Israel six years and died. Ibzan judged Israel seven years and died. Elon judged Israel 10 years and died. Abdon judged Israel eight years and died. Noticing a change in the pattern? <laughs> the cycle of rest has given way to the cycle of death. And the trend line is getting shorter. The whole period of rest after the days of Ehud was 80 years. That's longer than all the six judges of chapters 10 through 12 put together. 76 years. The literary structure of the book of Judges has come to a complete collapse. Even as Israel herself has come undone. In the final judge, Israel will be reduced to one man. And that one man will be both the greatest warrior in Israel's history as well as a pathetic excuse for a deliverer. The highs get higher, the lows get lower. Quite frankly, if you, if you take the book of Judges as a paradigm for the Christian life, believe me, I've heard it done. Woo! That's how you wind up with a manic depressive spirituality. But the book of Judges is not a paradigm for the Christian life. The book of Judges... It's all about Christmas. After all, what are you looking for in the book of Judges? In those days in Israel, there was no king. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. At the beginning of the book, we had seen there were these, the, the, God was, the Lord was with Judah. Who shall go first? The, Judah shall go first. And when Judah goes first, everything goes well for Israel. And now, here in chapter 13, we hear about the birth of a deliverer. In fact, uh, Judges 13 is quoted in Matthew's Gospel and paraphrased in two different places, as we'll see as we go through. But it's the birth story of Samson is telling us that there needs to be a king who is born in a special way. Who, and this is where, in a sense, you could say the book of Judges is about Advent. It's about our need for a king from Bethlehem. And we'll see that in the last two stories of the book, that Bethlehem plays the central role in the stories. These, these judges aren't cutting it. We get six, eight, maybe ten years of relief, and then 40 years of oppression under the hand of the Philistines. It's not working. Because the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, the Philistines are known as the, the sea peoples who came from the Aegean region during the Bronze Age collapse. They were you know, driven to look for new homes by the same forces that produced the Trojan War. 
by the 12th century BC, they had settled in the region that we call Philistia, the, the coastal plain of Canaan, with Israel settling in the hill country and the Philistines taking the, the, the coastal plain, the, the Canaanite population was overrun. Um, now, it, it might actually be more proper to say integrated into the other groups uh, because actually when, when, you look at the, when you look at the Philistines, the Philistines um, sort of, you might say, there's, there's clear genetic material coming from the Aegean at this time, but after a few more decades, a few more centuries, it's an overwhelmingly Canaanite population with but that are ruled by these Philistine sea peoples and in the same way as we keep seeing all through these chapters it's not like Israel actually succeeded at exterminating the Canaanites they didn't what happened to the Canaanites they kept living there I mean this is sort of like what happens to most peoples they don't disappear um, there's a they have a, there's a new ruling class that comes in and the people who were there before are still there they're just now underneath the, their rulers and blended in with their rulers. It's, it's how, you know, William Wallace was actually, his ancestors were from Wales. He, he was actually part of the Norman, his family was part of the Norman invasion of Scotland. But, you know, somehow he gets to be the hero of Scotland because, well, he go, his family goes native. That's a very familiar story. In fact, the Philistines would be a similar sort of story. They're not all sea peoples. There's a whole lot of Canaanites who wind up blended in with the Philistines. Now, the Philistines will become the most significant threat for Israel for the next several generations. Uh, indeed, the Philistine threat will prompt Israel to ask for a king. And only the king after God's own heart, David, will overthrow them finally. But Samson, as we heard in our text tonight... Samson will be the one who begins to save Israel from the Philistines. Now, meanwhile, Israel doesn't seem all that concerned. If you think about the, in, throughout the story of Samson, uh, Israel, and particularly you know, Judah, pops up in our story fairly often. Judah tries to just stay out of the way of the Philistines. There's no crying out to God for deliverance. There's no reference to, uh, to Samson gathering Israel together to fight against the Philistines. There's no final victory over the Philistines. Previous judges led Israel against their enemies. Samson will be a solitary figure. Israel may be oppressed, but they seem fairly content to be oppressed. There's no repentance, no sense of their sin and misery, just a general attempt to avoid trouble. Sound familiar? Aren't we like that a lot? We just want to avoid conflict. And why do we want to avoid conflict? It's usually something about self-protection. We want to protect ourselves. But who are we hiding from? Sometimes it's other people that we think might harm us. Sometimes we are hiding from ourselves. Almost always we are hiding from God. Our first parents tried to hide from God and we've been doing it ever since. But God promised all the way back in Genesis 3 that he would send a deliverer, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so even though there is no crying out to the Lord, there is no repentance, no turning away from sin, yet the Lord raises up a deliverer. While we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Now, as we look at the deliverer, the parallels between Samson 
and Israel, and sort of if you think about the Exodus, is, are really important. Both are born miraculously by the will of God. In Exodus 4, God says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he may serve me. And Israel is brought out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God. Both have a rash and immature personality. Uh, Think about Israel in the wilderness. Samson, hmm. (laughs) See a lot of parallels. Both experience bondage and oppression from their enemies. Both cry out to the Lord. At least... Israel in the wilderness did. They're not doing it anymore. Samson will later. Both are blinded. As, and there's ways in which Israel's blindness uh, it will, be, will become clearer, especially in the book of Samuel. But they're blinded in such a way that even when they are abandoned by Yahweh, they don't realize it until it is too late. Now, Samson is in some ways the most obvious type of Christ in the whole book. But on the other hand, he is perhaps the least like Christ in his total preoccupation with his own personal agenda. Gideon and Jephthah may have been selfish and arrogant in their rule at times, but at least they ruled. Samson appears totally unconcerned for Israel and spends his whole time running after foreign women. But verse 2 begins the story of Samson's birth with a focus on his unnamed mother. Think of all the, the barren women in the, in the Bible. You know, Sarah and the birth of Isaac. Rebecca and the birth of Jacob and Esau. Rachel and the birth of Joseph. Hannah and the birth of Samuel. Elizabeth and the birth of John. All these barren women are named. Here, she's simply called the wife of Manoah. Now, barrenness was a part of God's judgment upon his people. Deuteronomy 28, verse 4 and 18 made it clear that if Israel obeyed God, he would bless them with children. But if they disobeyed, then he would curse them by not giving them children. Israel has disobeyed, and so there are more barren women in Israel. Now, note, this was, this was never a curse on particular women for their particular sins. The barrenness of Israel is, is not about Oh, because you particularly sinned, therefore... You... No, it's, it's that when the people of God turn away from God, barrenness is, is a result upon his people. They were, they were oppressed by their enemies, and their wives were barren. That's, it's not just that the, that the most wicked women in Israel are barren. No, it's that the righteous and the wicked alike were barren. I mean, it's worth thinking about the struggles in our own day in a similar way. Why do we see a rise in anxiety and depression in our day? It's not that you personally are not trusting God enough. Hear me. That's not it. Why is anxiety and depression on the rise? It's that we as a society, as a community, even dare I say we as the people of God, are not trusting God. And the result is that all sorts of miseries afflict our community. Manoah's wife is barren, not because of her sin particularly, but because of Israel's sin. Barrenness, cancer, heart disease, depression, COVID. I mean, these things do not come as individual punishments because of particular sins, but as our participation in the miseries of our community. But even as there is common wrath, this 
common wrath. I mean, why, why is there an uptick in depression and anxiety? Common wrath. It, 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 but it afflicts the righteous and the wicked alike. And in the same way, there is common grace. God has mercy on the unjust as well as the just. But even better, there is salvation. I mean, now, and we, this is what we get to see God doing in the midst of Israel's sin and misery in Judges 13. It's noteworthy that in the cases of Abraham, Isaac, and Zechariah, three faithful men, they interceded on behalf of their wives and God appeared to the husband first. Now, with Rachel, Hannah, and the wife of Manoah, God deals directly with the women first. So it's God, it's not that God picks one gender over the other when it comes to how he handles barrenness. He deals with whoever he, deem, he, he wishes to start with. Like Manoah's wife, Hannah and Rachel's husbands were also living under the threat of God's curse, you might say. You know, Jacob was living outside the land, while Elkanah, Hannah's husband, was living in the same sort of time of general Israelite rebellion. So this is just thinking about parallels. When you think about how the story plays out, Manoah here is named, and this is partly why I brought up the point about rest earlier, because his name means resting place. But he himself is restless and fearful. His wife is not named, which is usually a way of almost sort of marginalizing someone, and yet she continually appears to be the most faithful Israelite in the narrative. She believes the message of the angel while her husband doubts. And the angel's directions are entirely for her. And when her husband trembles at what will happen to them, she is the one who comforts him. And indeed, she then is also the one who names Samson. Now, the opening line from the angel of the Lord in verse 3 highlights her barrenness. Behold, you are barren and have not born children. <laughs> Thanks. I knew that. But you shall conceive and bear a son. In the middle of Israel's barrenness, in the middle of Israel's misery, as the greatest threat to Israel's future looms largest, God comes to a nobody in the middle of nowhere and says, you shall conceive and bear a son. But when God calls a nobody out of nowhere, he calls them to holiness. I mean, this, is, this is where the, the idea of holiness is, is not just... Sometimes we confuse holiness and righteousness. Holiness is not particularly just being a good person. Holiness is about being separated to God. Holiness is about being you know, connected to God. I mean, this, because that's actually part of, part of God's holiness is, is not just, I mean, we think of, oh, God is holy, that means he's separate from, but God's holiness is also that which impels him to bring a people to himself. Because that's why he says to us, be holy as I am holy. Because his purpose in holiness is to draw us to himself. And that's part of the problem 
We're not holy. How can an unholy people be connected to a holy God? But he calls them to holiness. And he, he says to her, Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. She is called to holiness. She is called to play an active role in the preparation of this deliverer. She must drink no wine or strong drink or eat and eat nothing unclean because the child is to be a Nazarite from birth. Now, what is a Nazarite? Uh, I'm going to summarize number six. If you want to have number six open, you can see it. Uh, but num number six describes the, what, is, what is a Nazarite? Moses had laid out the law of the Nazarite because the, the Nazarite vow was a, a special vow that a person could take to separate himself or herself to the Lord. It's about holiness. It's about being separate to the Lord. And there's three basic parts to the Nazarite vow. First, separating himself from wine and strong drink, cannot eat grapes or anything that came from the grapevine, number six, three, and four. Secondly, he or she must not cut his hair or beard for the whole of the duration of the vow. No, no razor for the entire time of the vow, no. Thirdly, must not go near a dead body, not even his father or mother, number six, verses six through eight. In fact, if a person died next to him, sort of, sort of you're going about your business and somebody dies next to you, oops, uh-oh, what, what happens? Well, you need to bring a sin offering and a burnt offering to atone for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body. By coming in contact with a dead body, the whole period previous to that is nullified and you got to start over again. Sort of basically the whole of the, the, the because the separation unto God has been defiled. Because at the heart of the Nazarite vow is the idea of holiness. Number 6, verse 8, all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Now, when we finish the book of Judges, I want to go back and work through the book of Leviticus because I think we need to understand uh, the idea of holiness a lot better. But it's just important to say it's not... I mean, it is an ethical category. But it's not ethics in the sense of being a good person. Holiness has to do with the ethics of our relationship with God. And that's at the very heart of what the Nazarite vows about. That's at the very heart of what, uh, of what Judges 13 is doing here. And here in Judges 13, this child is to be set apart to God from his mother's womb. Now, in a couple key ways, this is different from number six because... This is divinely imposed. Samson never makes a choice to become a Nazarite. God has declared him to be a Nazarite from his conception. And it's also, because it's in effect from conception, it also obligates his mother. She must basically fulfill the first nine months, as it were, of the Nazarite vow because the Holy One is within her. And also... This is a permanent Nazarite vow. In number six, it's very clear. It's a temporary period that you set aside for a particular time. But for Samson, this will be his whole life. 
It's also worth noting that the angel of the Lord specifies that the child is to abstain from eating anything unclean. Now, many have noted, well, that's not actually part of the Nazarite vow. No, this is just part of the ordinary Levitical law, which is supposed to be true of every Israelite. What's it doing here? <laughs> Any guesses? <laughs> Israel's not doing very well at obeying the Lord their God. They're worshiping other gods. Who, I mean, who knows what the average Israelite's doing right now? So what should have been true of every Israelite will now be especially true of Samson because they're not living the way God had told them. They were not avoiding unclean foods. And so this is where God calls Samson to be different from Israel in actually following what God had said Israel was supposed to do. But the point of all this is that God is faithful in raising up a deliverer even when Israel is not crying out for deliverance. At the same time, Samson is identified clearly as a partial deliverer. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He is not the final deliverer. They must wait for David to finish the job that Samson will start. Now, the announcement to Manoah's wife is paraphrased in Matthew's gospel when the angel announces to Joseph that Jesus will save his people from their sins. And indeed, when it speaks of how, it, when, uh, how he, would be, he is from Nazareth because he shall be a, a Nazarene, that's actually also quoted, it is quoting from, the, when you're like, like wait, no, but here it's a Nazarite. There it's a Nazarene. Those are two very different things. They come from very different Hebrew roots. Well, yeah, exactly. So the point that Matthew is making when he says, he sees the, the verbal similarity between Nazareth and Nazarite and says, oh, sort of a connection that's not etymological at le in the least. It's simply, it's a connection, sort of what Jesus is supposed to do and to be is connected to who Samson was. And so therefore Matthew makes that connection and says, see, there's a, Jesus is the one who becomes all that Samson was pointing to and fulfills even more than what Samson had started. What Samson will do partially and in advance, Jesus will do fully and finally. But now his wife comes to Manoah and, and tells him, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. So, smart, smart, smart lady. She, she, hmm, a man, a man looks like the angel of God. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the, from the womb to the day of his death. Now, now in one sense, it's, it's no big deal that she didn't mention the part about his hair. Manoah would know full well the details of a Nazarite vow. But in terms of the story... The fact that she omits that. <laughs> There's some foreshadowing there. Also, she says that he did not tell me his name. A point that Manoah seems to think is really important. And so Manoah prays. Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. 
Okay. Um, God has already told them what to do. But Manoah doesn't seem to accept his wife's word. What, what's missing? Did God not give his wife enough information? It kind of seems like Manoah kind of wants to be the man here. And though Manoah is obtuse, we are told that God listened to the voice of Manoah. Even when we are less than we ought to be, God is gracious. I mean, seriously, all through the Psalms, what happens when the psalmist says, the Lord listened? I mean, this, these, I mean when it says the Lord listened, this is going to be, the next thing you're going to hear is singing and dancing and celebrating because God heard my prayer. The Lord listened. He heard Manoah. And so the angel of God came again to the woman. <laughs> God is gracious to us in our infirmities, but he also wants us to see our infirmities for what they are. And she, being a good wife, runs and go get, goes to get her husband. She's not putting herself forward, but God is determined to honor her. And so the angel of the Lord shows up again to Manoah's wife and now waits for her to go get her husband. And when you look at verse 11 and following, the dialogue gets Manoah nowhere. Are you the man who spoke to this woman? I am. And you're like, is that, is that referring back to like what God said to Moses? Yes. What is to be the child's manner of life and mission? I already told your wife. She is to follow my directions. I mean, Manoah still thinks that he's talking with a prophet, so he offers to, to get a young goat. And maybe, maybe he's thinking back to Abraham and the, the three visitors. As we keep seeing, there's all sorts of parallels between Judges and Genesis. It's just every single time it comes off playing worse for the people in Judges because they don't seem to get the same thing. But he offers to get a young goat, and the angel replies that Manoah should offer it as a burnt offering to Yahweh. If you're thinking, sort of offering it as a burnt offering, he specifies to Yahweh, because an Israelite in these days might offer a young goat to more or less any of the deities around them. So that's why, make, make sure you offer this to Yahweh. Now, you might also be wondering, wait a second, why are people offering burnt offerings sort of in their backyard? Why? Things are not as they should be. Deuteronomy had said, central sanctuary is where you're supposed to. But at the same time, there's an awful lot that is not yet the way it should be. And so, the, and partly, when the angel of the Lord shows up, that is a holy place. When the angel of the Lord shows up, that is the place where God's presence is. So you might say the central sanctuary has just shown up in Manoah's backyard. Because this is, after all, the second person of the Trinity who just showed up here. It's entirely appropriate to offer a burnt offering to Yahweh when Yahweh is present. But M Manoah wants to know the name of the messenger. What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. 
And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? The idea of wonderful is that God's name is so far beyond Manoah's comprehension that there is no way of revealing it. The angel of the Lord is, after all, the second person of the Trinity. The ensuing scene reminds us of Gideon's sacrifice in Judges 6 when the angel of the Lord appeared to him. But there's some tweaks. Listen to how verse 19 puts it. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to Yahweh, to the one who works wonders, whose name is wonderful. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Now, one of the key differences was that Gideon thought of his gift as a sacrifice, whereas Manoah seems to think of it as an offer of hospitality. And, and the rejection of table fellowship is important here in light of the barren woman theme. Because when God came to Abraham, Abraham killed the fatted calf. God ate and drank with Abraham. But Manoah is not so honored. Israel has not exercised the faith of Abraham, and so God will not partake of the covenant meal with him. But also, in the case of of Gideon, it was God who gave comfort. Here, it is his wife who comforts Manoah with the assurance that they will not die. Well, when the angel of the Lord went up in the flame from the altar, Manoah and his wife fall to the ground. It's, by the way, it's, this is the first thing they do together in the whole chapter. They fall to the ground. This is where, in, you know, whatever obtuseness Manoah may have, when he realizes who he's dealing with, he responds appropriately. <laughs> and even though he does recognize that this is, I mean, and he, he responds in one sense very appropriate. His instincts are very correct. I mean, today we often think, ah, oh, if only I could see God. What happens every time somebody sees God in the entire scripture? They fall on their faces as though, you know, as though dead. They think they're going to die, or in some cases they do die. And that's not just Old Testament people. When John, the beloved disciple, sees the glorified Jesus, what does he say? I fell at his feet as though dead. So Manoah says to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Our God is a consuming fire. But his wife, being the sensible woman that she is, replies, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. God accepted our offering. The angel ascended in the fire. And if we die, then God's word would be made nothing because I'm supposed to have a baby here, stupid. So they get going and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. Really? Samson? That's the best you can do? You start wondering, does, does she get it? Samson means little son 
and they lived just a few miles from Beit Shemesh, the house of the sun, the center of sun worship in the region. And so many have wondered, uh, okay, Manoah's wife names her son after the Canaanite sun god? Or does the name have a double meaning? It, it's certainly suspicious to name your child after the Canaanite sun god, but we also cannot doubt that in God's purposes, Samson was like the dawning of the sun as the one who would begin to save his people from the Philistines. In one respect, Samson reveals the worst effects of the Canaanitization of Israel. But in other respects, he points forward to the faithful King David and to David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear that even in the description of him at the end of verse 24. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manahadan between Zorah and Eshtol. What is God doing here? The book of Judges has reached the point where there was no one left. I mean, Otniel, the first judge, was the nephew of Caleb. Ah, there is someone. Deborah was a prophetess. But then things started turning awry. Gideon's father was a Baal worshiper, which, what was Gideon doing? Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. Israel's judges were a pretty messy bunch. And now, there's no one left. And so God will raise up a deliverer from the barren womb. God will raise up a deliverer from one who could not give birth because there was no one left to save his people. All of these improbable births prepare the way for the impossible birth when the virgin would conceive and bear a son and call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The, there's a way in which the, the stories of the young Jesus and the stories of the young Samson are run in parallel. What do we know about Samson in between his birth and when he started his, his public ministry? And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. That gets almost quoted in the, in the Gospels when it says that Jesus grew in grace and in favor with God and with men. That this is, this is, what, this, this is what God is doing in taking the, the, the one who was improbably born and delivering his people through them. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manachedan between Zorah and Eshtol as God begins to bring salvation to his people from the Philistines even as our Lord Jesus will be raised up and the Spirit will fill him and as he goes forth to bring salvation to the nations. So let's pray. Oh Lord our God, have mercy on us because we, we need a deliverer. There is no one left. There is none who does what is right. There is none who, who seeks after you. And so we thank you that you have sent your son, our Lord Jesus, the one who was born of the virgin, 
who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, dead, and buried, who descended into hell and took upon himself the wrath and curse due to us for sin, that he might be raised from the dead and seated at your right hand in glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you that you have sent upon us your Holy Spirit, that we might be made fellow heirs with your Son, partakers of, of his inheritance, that we might be yours forever. Help us, we pray, by your Spirit to believe your promises. And as we face all the afflictions and troubles of, of this life, help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. May our hope be rest, rested in him, your Son, who sits at your right hand. May your grace and your mercy sustain us. May your spirit equip us that we might know you more and more and love you and love one another. Help us, Lord, in all of our callings as in our workplaces, in our, in our relationships, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, that in each place where you put us, we might hear your voice and, and believe your promises, that we might listen to your word and do it, knowing that in all these situations, you are continuing to work all things together for your good, for your glory, for our good, and for the salvation of your people, that indeed all the nations might know that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of your holy name. Have mercy, Lord, upon those who, who preach your gospel, both in this land and throughout all the nations, and even now as the, as the sun goes to its rest, that may, may the word that has gone forth throughout the nations bear fruit, in every place, in every land, in every tongue, that the name of Jesus might be honored and exalted in all the earth. For we pray in his name. Amen.